Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, May 12th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The UK confirms that they are sending long-range missiles to Ukraine. So British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace confirmed on Thursday that London is providing Ukraine with longer-range missiles, marking another escalation of NATO support for Kiev. So the UK is sending Storm Shadow missiles, which are air-launched and can be fired by Ukraine's Soviet fighter jets. According to CNN, the storm shadows that London is sending Kiev have a range of 250 kilometers or about 155 miles. I know the the range can vary with these missiles, but that's what most reports said that the version that the, the UK is sending have that range. So Wallace said that the storm shadows are now going in or are in the country itself. So that signals that some have already been delivered. They're on their way. You know, they're shipping them there already is is what he said. He did not specify how many of these missiles the UK is sending. He said, quote, the use of storm shadow will allow Ukraine to push back Russian forces based within Ukrainian sovereign territory, end quote. So the Kremlin called the news extremely negative and vowed to respond. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, quote, this will demand an adequate response from our military, which will naturally, from a military point of view, find corresponding solutions, end quote. Uh, if you remember, you know, the British recently uh, sent depleted uranium ammunition to Ukraine, and Putin responded to that by announcing that he's going to send nukes to Belarus. So that was a pretty big response to that. Um uh, U.S. officials have welcomed the British move, but have said that it will not mean the U.S. is going to be providing Ukraine with the Army tactical missile systems, the ATACMS. Ukraine has been asking for those missiles for a while now. They have a range of up to 190 miles, and they can be fired by the HIMARS rocket systems. So when it comes to the range here, the current munitions that Ukraine has been using with the U.S. HIMARS Artillery uh, systems, they have a range of up to 50 miles, although there have been reports of Kiev already using the ground-launched small diameter bombs, which have a range of up to 94 miles. The U.S. first pledged those for Ukraine in February, and you know it sounded like it was going to take a few months, maybe even a year, for those to be delivered, but then Russia said that they Ukraine was already using them at the end of March. Um, so who, it's not exactly clear uh, if they have them or if they do have them, how, you know, if they only have a few, but it seems to be that they're main, still mainly using, you know, those 50 mile range missiles. So the provision of longer range weapons to Ukraine risks a major escalation as they can be used to target Russian territory. Ukrainian officials have insisted that they would not use them for attacks inside Russia, but leaked Pentagon documents have indicated that Zelensky would want to. Um, there was a document about a conversation he had saying that he wasn't happy that they didn't have missiles that could hit Russian troops inside Russian territory. And, you know, when it comes to Crimea, Ukraine and its Western backers do not recognize Crimea as Russian territory, which means uh, targeting that peninsula 
is not off limits with these weapons. And attacks on Crimea can be just as escalatory as even Secretary of State Antony Blinken has acknowledged that the peninsula is a red line for Vladimir Putin. So uh, again, just another big escalation here of something NATO, you know, earlier said that they would not provide. All right, the next one here is Zelensky says that Ukraine needs more time before it's counteroffensive. So Zelensky has said that the Ukrainian military needs more time before launching its long-awaited counteroffensive, warning that doing it too early would result in a lot of casualties. So Zelensky told the BBC, quote, we can advance with what we've got and I think we can be successful, but we will lose a lot of people. I think that is unacceptable. We need to wait. We need a bit more time, end quote. Zelensky said Ukraine was still awaiting the delivery of some Western weapons. He said, quote, they will reinforce our counteroffensive and most importantly, they will protect our people. We are expecting armored vehicles. They arrive in batches, end quote. So Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, the mercenary force, the Russian mercenary force, he accused Zelensky of lying, and he claimed that a Ukrainian counteroffensive was in full swing already. And according to RT, a Russian war correspondent also said that Ukraine's counteroffensive has begun, citing attacks near Bakhmut and operations elsewhere on the front. According to Southfront, which publishes these maps every day, um, Ukrainian forces did make some more gains around the outskirts of Bakhmut. So if you are watching the video here, you'll see this is the city of Bakhmut, the city center, and Ukraine made some gains uh, in the southwest outskirts. And that could be from yesterday that I went over that uh, they Ukraine claimed gains in this area and then other gains uh, to the northwest of Bakhmut. At the same time, uh, it says the Russian army and uh, Russian and the Wagner forces are still, you know, gaining some territory inside the city. You know, it's a brutal fight. It seems like they're fighting block by block. So they're still moving, you know, west there. But here we have the Ukrainians uh, appear to be making some gains. Uh, but it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, any big counteroffensive has been launched. And for their part, the Russian defense ministry denied reports that Ukraine had broken through its defenses in several locations and said the only heavy fighting was around Bakhmut. The Russian defense ministry said, quote, reports by certain telegram channels of breaches of defenses in several pl places along the line of contact are not accurate, end quote. So leaked uh, documents, just to go over, you know, what I've covered quite a bit here is the fact that the U.S. and its allies don't seem to think Ukraine can really gain any significant territory in this counteroffensive. But for Blinken, uh, that doesn't matter as Blinken and his British counterpart, James Cleverly, they expressed on Tuesday that the Western powers would provide indefinite support regardless of the outcome. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the battlefield stuff, I mean, this stuff is moving pretty quickly. So who knows later, you know, on Friday, uh, the situation, it might be clear, maybe Ukraine is la launching some counteroffensive. Um, but right now I, I, I it doesn't seem like they are, um, there's just more, uh, fighting around Bakhmut. All right. Um, the next one here, U S accuses South Africa of arming Russia. The U.S. ambassador to South Africa has accused the nation of secretly supplying Russia with weapons, a claim that drew a rebuke from Pretoria. So this is American diplomacy for you. 
So the U.S. ambassador, Ruben Brigitte, he said that he knew that a Russian ship that docked in South Africa in December was loaded with weapons, but did not provide evidence for the claim. Apparently, if you remember back in December, a sanctioned Russian ship uh, docked in South Africa. And of course, the U.S. You know, freaked out about that. So Brigitte said, quote, we are confident that weapons were loaded onto that vessel, and I would bet my life on the accuracy of that assertion. The arming of Russia by South Africa is fundamentally unacceptable, end quote. So the accusation is sure to strain ties further with South Africa. The office of the, the president said that it was disappointing that he made this charge. A spokesman for the president said that the U.S. and South Africa had agreed to let an investigation into the Russian ship run its course and that U.S. intelligence could provide what evidence it had. So basically what they're saying is that, you know, we agreed on this investigation. And here you just have the U.S. ambassador coming out and making this accusation regardless of that. And, um, you know, he didn't provide any evidence. He's just saying, I know, you know, they, they're definitely arming them. And South Africa has been neutral in the conflict, and that really angers the U.S. You know, if you're not on the side that they want you to be, then, then they're not happy with you. So um, there's kind of some tensions between the U.S. and South Africa over that. And South Africa also recently conducted joint military exercises with Russia and China. Uh, all right, the next article here. So this is interesting. So I'm sure everybody knows about this uh, town hall that Trump did um, on CNN. And this is from Kelly Vlahos over at Responsible Statecraft. And it's basically just about what he said about Ukraine, which was interesting. So this is from Kelly Vlahos, former President Donald Trump, who was running to win his seat back from current President Joe Biden, told a friendly audience of Republican voters last night, this was written on Thursday, that Russian President Vladimir Putin made a tremendous mistake by invading Ukraine last year. When asked who he thought would win the current war, he told the interviewer, CNN anchor Caitlin Collins, quote, I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying, Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. And I'll have that done in 24 hours, end quote. So it's interesting. And, you know, who knows what he would actually do. When you talk about Trump and Ukraine, you know, we always have to point out that he was the one that first signed off the shipment of the Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine, crossing that line that Obama didn't want to cross. Um, but so, but anyway, it's just interesting. Kind of the point of the article is that, you know, these polls are showing that a lot of Republican voters are not too keen to keep supporting this war. Um, so that's, uh, you know, I'm sure Trump and his people know that. Uh, and it's also interesting, you know, when we talk about RFK Jr., who's trying to primary uh, Biden, you know, uh, I don't know enough about politics to know how serious of his his chances are. And I know the DNC is trying to, you know, kneecap his efforts anyway. But I think it's interesting that these two kind of candidates that are getting a lot of attention are both saying, you know, that they're going to end uh, U.S. you know involvement in this proxy war against Russia. Um, so, you know, it's all uh, interesting to see. And I think again, it shows. With these polls, you know, the one I went over yesterday that Republicans don't have much confidence in Zelensky. I think this support for Army Ukraine is definitely going to keep uh, waning, you know, when it comes to the voters, even I think on the Democrat side, especially if you have a Democrat, you know, speaking out against it. All right. The next one here. Spanish prime minister will ask Biden to listen to China and Brazil on Ukraine. 
So Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez will meet with President Biden in Washington on Friday and plans to urge the American leader to listen to China, Brazil, and other non-NATO countries on Ukraine. This is according to a report from Reuters citing a Spanish diplomatic source. So according to Reuters, Spain is aligned with the U.S. and NATO on Ukraine, but Sanchez will put himself forward as an intermediary because he has good relations with China and Brazil. The source said that his message will be that the U.S. should put greater weight on the opinion of non-NATO nations who have been impacted by the war in Ukraine. Both China and Brazil have been calling for a ceasefire in Ukraine, while the U.S. has rejected the idea of a ceasefire. The U.S. has also accused Brazil's president, uh, Lula, of parroting Russian and Chinese propaganda for saying that the U.S. was encouraging the war by pouring weapons into the country. So the U.S. initially strongly rejected China's push for a ceasefire with Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying that the world must not be fooled by China's peace plan. But I think due to just PR purposes, they kind of cooled down the rhetoric on that because, you know, it just doesn't look good when you're saying no to seat to the idea of a ceasefire, to the idea of people stopping killing each other. So they've cooled the rhetoric. And when uh, she, the Chinese president, spoke with Zelensky, the U.S. said, oh, yeah, this is a good thing. You know, they weren't, I think, again, it's just PR because they, if they said that they shouldn't have been talking, I don't know, would have been very revealing. Um, but during the call, she said that China is going to keep pushing for a ceasefire. So I think this is good. The Spanish prime minister, I mean, more world leaders calling for it's not necessarily that he's calling for ceasefire, but he's going to tell Biden, listen to the countries that are. So more pressure in that direction. All right. I just want to mention again that it is our fundraiser still at antiwar.com, and we are getting close to the end. We need to make a final push here to finally wrap this thing up. Um, you know, and we really appreciate all the help. We've got a lot of donations and a lot of nice messages from people help, uh, that are supporting us. We appreciate all our readers and supporters and listeners and viewers of the show. Cause that's how we get by. That's how we're able to do this for you and make this page for you every day. So if you go to antiwar.com slash donate, you can see the different ways that you could support us one-time donation, credit card, PayPal, or crypto, or you could set up a monthly donation. Those are uh, a huge help. Uh, but please help us finish this thing up. Antiwar.com slash donate. All right, the next one, Sullivan meets with China's top diplomat in Vienna. So National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with China's top diplomat for two days in Vienna this week, marking the highest level of in-person engagement between the two nations since President Biden and President Xi Jinping held talks in Bali last November. So this kind of came out of nowhere. You know, there's no announcements about this meeting beforehand. And according to a White House readout, Sullivan and Wang Yi, who is the director of China's Central Foreign Affairs Commission, they met from May 10th to the 11th, so on Wednesday and Thursday. And the White House said that they held, quote, candid, substantive and constructive discussions on key issues in the U.S.-China bilateral relationship, end quote. The readout said that the topics discussed were uh, global security issues, Russia's war in Ukraine, and Taiwan. They said the meeting was part of an effort to maintain open lines of communication. 
So according to China's uh, Xinhua News Agency, they also described the talks in a similar way. They said they were constructive. Um, and they sell, said that they discussed removing obstacles in U.S.-China relations. Wang also expressed China's solemn position on the Taiwan question, which, of course, has been a major source of tensions as the U.S. has been increasing support for Taipei. According to both readouts, the two sides have agreed to maintain communication. The U.S. and China made a point to hold high-level talks after Biden and Xi met, again, back in November in Bali. But that progress was reversed after Blinken canceled a planned trip to China over the Chinese balloon that wound up in U.S. airspace in February. Beijing effectively froze high-level talks with Washington after Blinken called off that visit, but it looks like they're back on. And the Sullivan-Wang meeting came after China's foreign minister, Ching Gang. He spoke with the U.S. ambassador to China on Monday, and he said, if you really want to talk, you have to respect our positions, including China's red line on Taiwan. So hopefully the U.S. is actually listening to that. It's always good to see talk happening. Um, at least there is some effort, you know, not to get tensions too high here. But I doubt the U.S. is really going to reverse its uh, big plans that it has over there in the Asia Pacific. All right, the next one here. This is from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. The Pentagon begins a process of building layered air defenses in Guam. And this is part of that military buildup. And they're really trying to build things up over in the U.S. territory of Guam. So a Defense Department official told Congress that the agency has started the paperwork for building a multi-layered air defense system in Guam. The Missile Defense Agency is requesting $1.5 billion to spend on building interceptors on the island next year. Missile Defense Agency Director Vice Admiral John Hill told a Senate panel Tuesday that at several sites, the Pentagon is conducting environmental impact studies. So it means that they, they got the ball rolling on this. And this is all part of uh, the uh, this big plan, the, the Missile Defense Agency. They're planning to deploy uh, Aegis, SM3, SM4, and THAAD interceptors. So there's gonna, they're going to put quite a bit, quite a few systems here. And the Pentagon previously awarded Lockheed Martin with a $527 million contract to develop uh, one of these systems for Guam. So this is uh, where we are at with the Guam buildup. Uh, the next one here, Israel kills 30 Palestinians in Gaza as violence escalates. So this is the uh, updated death toll. Uh, so, so far, you know, the Israeli bombing campaign in Gaza has continued. Israel has killed 30 Palestinians and injured more than 90 others in air attacks on the Gaza Strip since Tuesday. The Palestinian Health Ministry has said this article is from Al Jazeera. The victims include six children and three women as well as the head of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket force and his deputy. Palestinian factions in Gaza continue to fire rockets in retaliation from the besieged coastal enclave into Israel, killing one person on Thursday. So one person has been killed in Israel now. Amid mediation efforts by Egypt, neither side seemed ready to douse the worst flare-up since August, now in its third day. Netanyahu basically said that they're going to keep it going. He said, quote, we are at the height of a campaign, both offensive and defensive. Whoever comes to harm us, his blood is forfeit, end quote. And he did say explicitly that it's not over uh, and it's going to continue. So unfortunately, it looks like this, this is just going to keep going. 
Um, and Egypt said that it's trying to secure a truce, but so far its efforts have proved futile. So pretty uh, brutal stuff. Um, all right. And the U.S., of course, is giving them, you know, backing them as they usually do. You had the State Department say that they support Israel's right to protect itself, even though protecting itself included killing uh, at least 10 civilians in the initial round of airstrikes. All right. Uh, the next one here, lawmakers introduce bill to combat Syria normalization. So this isn't a surprise, but a bipartisan group of lawmakers in the House have introduced a bill aimed to combat Syria's normalization with regional countries that would expand sanctions and prohibit the U.S. from establishing diplomatic ties with the government of Bashar al-Assad. So the bill was introduced by Representative Joe Wilson, uh, Michael McCall, Steve Cohen, uh, so it's bipartisan, and several other members of the House. The legislation comes as a response to Syria being readmitted into the Arab League, which has enraged U.S. officials who want to keep Syria isolated. McCall said in a statement, Quote, the United States must use all of our leverage to stop normalization with Assad. I am proud to join my colleagues in mandating further sanctions against any form of investment in territory under the control of the Assad regime as we remain committed to ensuring the Syrian people receive justice, end quote. So that's how they, you know, their rhetoric is all about how they care about the Syrian people. But the bill seeks to expand the Caesar Act, which the U.S. used to impose crippling economic sanctions on Syria in 2020. And they're designed to prevent the country's reconstruction. And of course, they're hurting the civilian population. And the House recently voted overwhelmingly to keep enforcing these sanctions following an earthquake that killed thousands of Syrians. So they don't care about Syrians. According to a summary of the bill, the legislation would expand the Caesar Act by plugging loopholes in the original bill that made it hard to enforce. The bill would also clarify the applicability of current sanctions to Syrian regime airlines and to energy transactions, sending a clear sign to countries normalizing with Assad, which are considering allowing Syrian airlines to land in their airports. So they're going to target, uh, I guess, state-owned airlines. Um, so... The legislation would also require an annual strategy to counter normalization. Um, so they're just trying to pull out all the stops here to do what they can. Kind of seems like a flailing effort because, you know, as I've been covering a lot, uh, it seems inevitable that these regional countries are going to normalize with Syria. And is the U.S. really going to, you know, sanction Saudi Arabia over that, sanction Jordan over that? I don't know. Uh, I bet, though, that this bill gets a lot of support. It, this could make it through Congress. Um, all right. So the last one here, Saudi envoy says that it's unclear when Yemen deal will come. So Saudi Arabia's envoy to Yemen said Thursday that all sides engaged in talks to end the war in Yemen are serious, but the next steps are unclear. So this is Mohammed Al-Jabir and he is the Saudi envoy to Yemen. He said, quote, everybody is serious. Serious means everybody's looking for peace. It's not easy to be clear about the next steps, end quote. So he was the Saudi official who was recently in the Yemeni capital of Sana'a, and he held in-person talks with the Houthis. Uh, and the negotiations were very significant, and it's it's good. It's, you know, both sides said good progress was made, but no deals were signed. Um, and this Saudi official is trying to characterize, you know, the Saudi role as a mediator, downplaying the idea that they're a party to the conflict, which is just nonsense because the Saudis, 
you know, led a coalition of Gulf countries in 2015 to intervene in the country. They bombed it into oblivion. They enforced a blockade on it. They are directly involved in this war. But what this official is trying to say is that, oh, they, we need a deal between the Yemeni government, the, ex the exiled government, which is a presidential council now. Uh, so this presidential council formed last year, and that replaced Hadi, who was the president of Yemen when the Houthis took over and he fled in 2015. So he hasn't been in the country since then. And now this presidential council is also in Saudi Arabia, but they have little power in Yemen. And they have another big problem is the fact that these Southern separatists, it's this group known as the Southern transition council. Um, they're calling to restore South Yemen, <laughs> which South Yemen was a country, uh, there was North and South Yemen until 1990, until it became one country to the borders that we know today. But, you know, they want to partition Yemen and they, they want to have control of South Yemen. And then North Yemen, if you look at the map here, if you're watching the video, that what used to be the country of North Yemen is virtually completely controlled by the Houthis, except for some territories, you know, I think out, outlying here. Um, so, you know, again, it's bad news for this presidential council. So, um, the Houthis, you know, I mean, if they really need a peace deal, there, there has to be a deal between the Saudis, of course, and the Houthis first. Um, and then you also have this situation with the Southern transition council. So hopefully, you know, these talks continue to progress and they, and they come to some sort of agreement then. And, you know, so we don't have to worry about this war potentially flaring up, uh, again, all right. So that is it for the news. Um, you could go check out our viewpoints. There's actually one from me. I wrote a, a opinion piece about a point that I'm always kind of making on this show. It's titled to avoid war with China over Taiwan. The U.S. needs to back down. So go check that out. I just kind of put together just my response to all these China hawks saying, you know, we need to arm Taiwan to the teeth to avoid a war. Uh, we got one from William J. Astore, America's Mercenary Wars. One from Alexander Rubinstein over at the Gray Zone. American Ukrainian media asks who should be next after the car bombing of a Russian writer. One from Blaze Malley and Connor Eccles over at Responsible Statecraft. The reported Joint Chiefs pick is a boon for China Hawks. So Mark Milley is on his way out. And the, his replacement, General C.Q. Brown, to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he apparently is a big China guy, uh, so China Hawk, and that's kind of what this article is about. And uh, the the uh, spotlight is from Matt Taibbi, the censorship industrial complex, the top 50 organizations. It's this huge report from actually several journalists and researchers about all these organizations that censor things. I haven't read the whole thing yet. It's pretty huge, uh, but go check that out. And that is everything for today. We have a lot about Shireen Abu Ekla as Thursday marked uh, the one-year anniversary of her being gunned down and killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank. Uh, but that's everything, and that's it for me for the week. Please help us with our fundraiser, antiwar.com slash donate, and you can share the show around uh, on YouTube. Um, listen wherever you listen to podcasts. If that's how you do it, if you listen to the audio, leave a review. That always helps. Uh, but that's it for me. I'll be back after the weekend. Thanks for listening.